James chapter 2, and I'll commence reading from verse 14. But our focus of attention this afternoon is right through verse 20, from verse 21 to the end of that chapter. James chapter 2, I commence reading from verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without, <coughs> excuse me, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? <coughs> excuse me. So also, faith by itself, if it, is, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his, wor his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, and was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. <clears throat> We continue in our study through the book of James under the series, True Faith Shows Itself in Practical Godly Living. True Faith Shows Itself in Practical Godly Living. This afternoon we focus on verse 21 through to verse 26, and here we see James contrasts Living faith with what he describes or described as dead faith from verses 14 through to verse 20. James has established, as we saw the last time I was preaching, that faith without works is useless. And James has established that fact. And now he moves to show from the scriptures the positive truth that saving faith manifests itself in the production of good works. And as evidence, he quotes from the Old Testament and he quotes Abraham and Rahab to show that faith produces good works, 
Living faith will show itself in good works. And the reference to the two quotations from the Old Testament, each reference is introduced with a rhetoric question. And this rhetoric question is inviting an affirmative response when he says, was not Abraham our father? And then he goes on like that. And what James is really saying is that if there's anyone who claims to be a professing Christian, anyone who claims to have faith, and then that faith does not produce good works or does not result in good works or in works, James is basically saying such a person is a spiritual comedian. He actually uses the word, oh, you foolish one. Because James is convinced that faith and works are inseparable. There is this unbroken, unbreakable bond between faith and works. And he, as he's writing to, to Christians, his goal is that each one of them will examine themselves <clears throat> and see whether their faith is actually, pro, is actually manifesting or showing itself in practical, godly living. And he, to show his argument, he brings out two evidence from the Old Testament or evidences from Old Testament. And the first evidence or the first proof that he brings is that of Abraham. That of Abraham. And he's basically showing that Abraham's works proved his faith, proved the genuineness of his faith. And this is what he says in verse 21 to 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and was called a friend of God. <clears throat> And so James highlights the working of Abraham's faith. And he knew that by citing Abraham, Abraham's example would carry great weight to his audience. He was well known, a forerunner as it were, a man of faith, a man who enjoyed close fellowship with God. A man who had this relationship with God that God, he was referred to as a friend of God. And so the rhetoric question that James raises, he's, he expects his audience to confirm that Abraham was considered righteous for what he did. And verse 21 is in, indicates the source or the reason for this 
Abraham's justification. His, verse 21 is not talking about the means of Abraham's justification, but the reason why he was counted as righteous. And James is clear in his understanding. Abraham was not saved by his obedience in sacrificing Isaac. Rather, the obedience proved the reality, the genuineness of his previous saving faith. The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 8 states, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, of, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And this is a reference to Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham out of his homeland, out of his people, and then he tells them to go to a place that God himself was to show him. And when you get to Genesis 15 and verse 6, remember God promises Abraham that I will make you into a great nation. And in Genesis 15 and verse 6, with an Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And so Abraham, even though at that time was still childless, believed God. The same God who had called him in Genesis 12, and that God appeared to him in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And then when you read in, in, in Hebrews 11, verse 17, the Bible says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. The evidence that Abraham believed God He's seen in his actions, in his actions towards this God. And he obediently offered up Isaac. And when you read the scriptures after Genesis 22, the scriptures record no further testing or testings of Abraham after this supreme testing of offering up his son Isaac. Demonstrating that God was first in Abraham's life. And then after that, you don't see God testing Abraham. And when you read Hebrews, Hebrews shows us that all this was by faith. And now James uses this same example to illustrate that Abraham's faith in God is what moved him to respond to this God through whatever it is that God had commanded him. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26, and then also in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. These are the only places in the New Testament 
that refers to the sin in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through to verse 18. And people have used, have often uh, debated as to Paul's usage of the word justified and to James' usage of the word justified. And you know Martin Luther, when that, the reformer, when he read the book of James, he referred to it as the epistle of straw. Straw. Because as far as Martin Luther was concerned, we are justified by faith alone. And he was correct. But also, you see, because he was so much into the battle in the Roman Catholics who were teaching salvation of works, and when Luther, through reading Romans chapter 1, came across the verse, the just shall live by faith, and then reading the, piece, the letter of James, he failed to reconcile the two. And he basically said to even give up his doctorate if someone would be able to explain what James really was saying. But really, when you understand James and understand Paul, the two are not contradicting themselves. Paul is dealing with the root of justification. Remember, he's in, in the book of Romans, he's dealing with so many theological issues. And one of the things he deals with is we are justified by faith alone. He's looking at what's the root of justification. And then James is dealing with the fruit of that justification. That if you claim that you are a Christian and the grace of God has taken residence in your heart, this must be true of you. There must be fruit in keeping with your profession of faith. And so James' argument clearly does not imply a forensic declaration of justification. Rather, he is pointing to the divine vindication of the righteous nature of Abraham's character. And this character was manifested by the actions flowing from his faith to God. That's why he says, Abraham, in offering Isaac, was justified. And God's pronouncement on, on Abraham arose out of that single act of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. And the Greek rendering of this verse has what we refer to as an aerist, aerist, an aorist verb. An aorist verb basically indicating uh, an action that has happened in the past and it is completed. And so what James is basically saying that as far as Abraham's intentions were concerned, Isaac was already offered on the altar and he was as good as dead. Although Genesis 22 tells us that the angel of the Lord intervened and told Abraham not to not to kill his son. But the moment Abraham knew what God was requiring of him, it was a done deal. His son was no more. 
That's why when you, when you read in Hebrews, it's why he believed God was able to bring Isaac back from the dead. It was his faith, his understanding of this God who requires so much from me. He knew this God. It is this same God who appeared to him in Genesis 15. This God who told him that even though you're advanced in age, your wife is advanced in age, you will be a great nation. And now Isaac is born. And this same God requests of his son Isaac, his only son. Now Abraham believed this God. And his faith in this God moved him to willingly give up his son Isaac. And that is part of the test of Abraham was the fact that the command to offer Isaac appeared totally inconsistent with the revelation God made to Abraham. God had promised him that he would be a great nation. Isaac was the the promise bearer. But Abraham's active faith in God enabled him to find reconciliation in Isaac's resurrection. That this God is able to bring back my son. Don't know how or when, but I leave everything in the hands of this God. And it was upon this act that the Bible said he was, he was referred to as righteous. It was counted to him as righteous. It was like a divine seal upon Abraham's consciousness of his acceptableness with God. That faith he had in God was sealed in that moment when he willingly gave up even his beloved son to this God. And God sealed this active faith and called him as and counted to him as righteous. And so don't miss that Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, Abraham had faith in this God. That's why he left his own country to follow this God. And he believed in this great God. And so James uses this example, example that was well known, to drive this point that faith and works are inseparable. Our faith in God moves us to respond to this God out of love for him. Not that our faith brings acceptance before God. Rather, our works brings, us, brings acceptance before God. But as our faith in this God moves us to do whatever this God demands or requests of us. And James adds in verse 23... And the, scriptures, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and was called a friend of God. 
the expression a friend of God does not mean that Abraham initiated this friendship and, and made God his friend. Rather, the meaning is that Abraham had the great privilege of having God accept him as his friend. He was the recipient of God's love and God's intimacy. God accepted Abraham as his friend. It's the same thing about what the Bible says about David, a man after God's own heart. It's not so much about the individual David, but it's, it's God's own heart. So David is a man after God's own heart. Everything points to the character and the nature of God. God himself delights in David. And he refers to him as a man after God's own heart. Not that there was anything extraordinary in David himself that attracted God. But God calls David a man after his own heart, and he delights in David. The expression, Abraham, a friend of God, is used twice in the Old Testament. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 7, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, you can take note of that, and also in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. Isaiah 41 and verse 8. And in both contexts, you see, it's all about God and not Abraham. It's God who brings Abraham into this privilege of friendship with God. And so what we see here is that Abraham's knowledge of this God, Abraham's faith in this God, moved him or caused him to be willing to give up everything for this God. He had come to know this God. He had something of a privilege of relating with this God. To a point that when you read in Genesis 18, when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God would say, should I have what I'm about to do to Abraham? There was this relationship, and this relationship was because Abraham had the knowledge of this God, and he knew something of this God, and so his faith in this God was based on knowledge, and therefore he considered it a privilege to serve this God in whatever way. That even offering up Isaac to this God, as difficult as it was, will not be a loss because of the supremacy, the excellency, and the majesty of this great God. And what we see here, James is showing to us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous and he was called a friend of God. And how amazing 
that God can call any human being his friend. This is what we are as God's children. In Christ, we are the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ connected friendship with obedience to what he had says or commands. In John 15 and verse 12, the Lord Jesus Christ says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And friendship with God is on, on the terms of obedience. Human beings responding to God in obedience, and that obedience is rooted in love. And James, the obedience that James is referring to to God, is not just a, it's not an outward expression or outward obedience to a list of commands. But James is talking about an obedience which involves personal friendship. And this personal friendship is not with anyone but the God of the universe. The God who entered the realm of time, was born of a, of a virgin, and died on the cross for our sins, and that through him we are invited into this friendship with God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of our friendship and our knowledge of this God, we too are required or expected to do good works because of our obedience to this God and our love and friendships with this great God. Genuine faith and works are inseparable because genuine faith results always in good works. And the motivating factor is the knowledge we have of this God, the relationship we have with this God. And this is exactly what James is saying when he quotes or cites Abraham as an example. The second proof that James brings is that of Rahab. Rahab's works proved her faith was genuine. And again, we see this in verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, James is saying, think of the prostitute Rahab. And when James begins in verse 25 in the same way, he underscores that his second illustration is teaching the same truth as his first illustration. That it was Rahab's faith in the God of the Israelites that made her to do the works that she did. And James may have picked Rahab 
to contrast with Abraham. Abraham was the distinguished patriarch. Rahab was the delivered prostitute. Abraham was the father of the Hebrews, the Jews. She was a pagan, a foreigner. Abraham was a man. She was a woman. And there's a subtle comparison in both Rahab and Abraham. And these were models of faith and hospitality. And Abraham, rather James, as he's writing, he shows that here is Abraham who believed God. And here is Rahab the harlot or the prostitute. And even her believed God. She had heard of this God and she believed God. And her faith in this God drove her to do what she did. And James is contrasting with the, the person he was talking about in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, who sees the person in need of clothes, in need of food, and just say, go well, keep warm, the Lord bless you. He said, that's not genuine faith. That's dead faith. Faith in God moves you to do something. Not because of anything, but simply because of the faith that is yours in God. And so James uses Rahab's story. Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. And she had an inn, some kind of a lodge. When you read the context, seem to suggest that. She had an inn in Jericho. And that inn had a bad reputation. Remember, she's referred to as a, as a harlot. When the two Hebrew spies came into town, she hid them from the king's men and then sent them by another way so that they would escape. But when you read in Joshua chapter 2, before she sent them off, she testified of how she had heard of the God of the Israelites. How that the Lord, the God of the Israelites, had delivered them from Egypt. And this God had brought about victories and conquered the peoples of the land. And in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11 and the last part of verse Verse 11, she says these words recorded for us. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. That was a verbal confession of faith. She had heard so much and then she testified that the, the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven and on earth beneath, heaven above and on earth beneath. 
There is no God like you. And then she, she secured a pledge from these spies to ensure that when this God hands over Jericho into their hands, she and her family will be spared. And you could see in her words that there was no shred of doubt that Jericho will be handed over into the hands of the nation of Israel. She was convinced why she believed the God of the Israelites, that this God had no equal, and there was no one who could stand in the way of this God when this God chose to do what he wanted to do. And James' point is this, that Rahab did not, just, did not just say, I believe in your God, and then allowed the king's men to arrest the spies. She risked her life to help these Hebrew spies. And she did everything so that the king's men would not find them. And then she also carefully followed the, the, the instructions of these spies to do exactly what she was taught so that when they come to conquer Jericho, they'll be able to notice her home and her home will be spared. Her faith was not just empty words. Her faith worked. She had knowledge of this God. She had heard so much about this God. She trusted this God and followed the instructions of the spies. And her life and that of her family was spared. But it's always interesting to note that whenever the scriptures refer to Rahab, she's always referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Even after her conversion. And Matthew Henry has some, has some interesting thoughts to share. And, and this is what he says. Firstly, her life points to the wonderful power of faith in transforming and changing sinners. She left her evil life, and although she was a Canaanite, she is later included in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, verse 5. Secondly, her example shows how highly God regards an operative faith to obtain his mercy and favor. No matter how great your sins, the Bible promises whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thirdly, her life shows that where great sins are pardoned, there must be great acts of self-denial. She had to prefer the honor of God 
and the good of his, his people ahead of the, the preservation of her own country. She had to abandon her former friends and turn completely from her, from her former course of life in order to be saved. To follow Christ, we must count the cost and turn away from sin. And fourthly and lastly, the fact that she's still called Rahab the prostitute, even after salvation, shows, shows that her former character must be remembered, not so much to disown her, but as to glorify the rich grace and mercy of God. It is good for all of us to remember that we were once sinners and God saved us from sin. Or to use the words of Isaac Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And so Rahab, the prostitute, the, the harlot, believed the God of the Israelites and risked her life to hide the spies because she knew that this God has no equal. And it was a faith in this God that she risked her life and of that of her family in order to hide the spies. And James uses Rahab as, a, as an example of living faith being shown in works. And brethren, our knowledge of God, our relationship with God must cause us to see that anything this God requires of us is a great privilege. Even if it means simply being an usher or a, a doormat in his house, it's a great and glorious privilege because this God who needs nothing out of himself has come into your life and has changed your life and now he, has he enables you to see who truly he is. And surely any task from him is a great and glorious privilege. And our faith in this God must be demonstrated in our works to this great God. It must not just be empty profession or confession. It must result in obedience even in very difficult situations. We must save this God as unto our faith. And the basis of all this is faith in God. And this faith in God is rooted 
in our knowledge of this God. That's why we need to grow in our understanding of God. Sometimes we, we limit God to our finite thinking. He is the omnipotent one. In him there is infinite fullness. And God's infinite fullness must make us to realize what a privileged lot we are that we can even do anything to please this God. But also this, this infinite fullness must cause us to come before God and ask of him by faith. Finite necessity cannot exhaust infinite fullness. It can't. That's why Christ said, ask. And it, it will be given. We cannot exhaust this infinite fullness. And we need to know this God. We must grow in knowledge of this God. Only then will we be appreciative of what God we serve. Even when he demands of us through his words, we'll see that as a glorious privilege to serve this God. And so those two examples leads James to this conclusion. And the conclusion that he makes is this. Faith without works is dead. That's James' conclusion. And this is seen in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is clear there are no two ways about it. Having cited two examples from the Old Testament of individuals who had faith in God and therefore their faith in God drove them to act in the way they did. His conclusion is that faith without works is dead. And he uses an, uh, a brief analogy to reinforce his point. And he's saying, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now the analogy that James is using is that if you see a body that is not breathing, your conclusion is simple. That body is dead. You, you, you don't begin to try and be scientific about it. That's what comes to mind. It's dead. And he's saying, if you see faith that does not produce good works, your conclusion must be that faith is dead. It's useless. 
It's not a genuine thing. Works are not added to faith, but rather they are inseparably a part of genuine faith. If you see someone breathing, you, you don't think to yourself that that person has added breathing into his collection or stock. Rather, breathing is part of being a living body. It's part of being alive. And that's James' analogy. Faith is the root Good works are the fruits. And we must see to it that we have both. An inactive faith covered in an intelligibly approved creed or doctrine is of no more value than a corpse. It's dead. Faith is first. Works must follow in order to demonstrate that that faith is real. Although works will not bring us into a right relationship with God, they are to be the natural result of salvation. And, and this teaching of James is relevant. It's this teaching that offers a corrective method or teaching in a world we live in which is unreal, verbalistic kind of religion that claim allegiance to, to high doctrines, but results in low levels of practical holiness. Live at a time when Christians who, who brag about the, the, these doctrines they know, and they'll talk about these doctrines, and, and they can explain, and yet when it comes uh, to living, we are so selfish, so self-centered, so low in our practice of holiness, in our practice of good works. A correct doctrine or a high understanding of the doctrines of the scriptures is no substitute for practical godly living. Yes, we must have these high views of the scriptures. We must know the doctrines of the scriptures. We must teach and, about God's providence, God's sovereignty. But those are, that's no substitute of practical godly living, practical holiness. Christian faith must manifest itself in active obedience 
to God's words, God's standard, God's requirements. It is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies is never alone. It results in good work. Salvation is a gift of God. And when God saves you, he transforms you inside out. He gives you a new perspective to things. And you, who is born again, you desire to follow Christ. You desire to please him. You desire to save him. You desire to give to him. Why? Because God has transformed your heart and has given you a new perspective of him and service to him. And his faith helps us to see that good works are very, very much part of the Christian faith. Most of us, particularly as Reformed Baptists, are guilty in these areas. We can easily explain the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, and all these kinds of doctrines. And yes, we must be able to do that. And yet have nothing to show forth in our lives. And we need to examine ourselves. That may just be a clear evidence that perhaps we've never come to know this God. Faith and works are inseparable. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And this faith that is ours in Christ emulates its Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world to bring salvation and to do good to humanity. As C.H. Spurgeon says, and with that I'll end, the world does not read the Bible, but the world reads Christians. They watch your life, and may your life be in line with the scriptures, so that when they look at you, they'll be able to see that if this is what Christianity is about, then it is something worth emulating because their faith in God is moving them to do service for God in this world. And that service to God is producing good works. Amen.